the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about voting rights and the struggle to be sure that the gains made over the last five decades for African Americans are not rolled back by those who would restrict voter access to preserve power for themselves. Mark Morial of the National Urban League will join to talk about that organization's latest report. Then we're going to talk about how we can all engage more in our own communities and engage in ways that make those communities better. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. diminish and destroy democracy. This is a plot to diminish and destroy democracy. That was the voice of National Urban League president and CEO Mark Morial delivering this year's State of Black America report. There, he was talking about our system of elections and the peaceful transfer of power, two things that really frame the democracy that we live in here in the United States, but two things that have often come up short, especially with regard to African-Americans and the rights that we enjoy alongside our other brothers and sisters in America. Voting rights in particular have come under attack in recent years from the right, especially since the 2020 election, but not just Since that pivotal moment, uh, there has been a real effort to kind of roll back voter access, voter ease as the numbers of black and brown people in this country who actually show up and try to exercise their right to vote has been growing. Morial says it's not just the big lie or right wing media channels that are chipping away at our democracy. He says bad actors have been using their power inside government to diminish voting rights and suppress the vote for years, of course, before Donald Trump was the president of the United States. And Marielle joins us now to talk about that and his view of the state of black America in 2022. Mark Morial, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, good morning. Great to be with you and good morning to your listening audience. Yes, yes. So before we dig into the content of your speech and the issues you bring up, I want to start with the really interesting history of the Urban League State of Black America speech. Talk about how this tradition started for your organization. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, thank you. It goes back to Vernon Jordan's uh, presidency in 1976 when he he heard uh, President Ford uh, address the nation with his State of the Union address. Jordan noted that there was no mention of the challenges that black America faced, no mention of civil rights, no mention of the deep uh, recession or poverty or the great disparities. Uh, It was as though black America did not exist. So Jordan said, I'll do my own report. Hmm. And thus he pulled together a group of scholars and experts, and they put out the first state of black America report in 19. 
1976. Uh, we've published it since then. Uh, when I joined the National Urban League a decade or so ago, I added to the uh, uh, State of Black America Report a statistical index called the Equality Index, which gives us really a baseline measure of the social and economic conditions of black America versus white America. Uh, and then this year, we, uh, we have a singular uh, focus uh, in really to go in-depth. And we like to take a topic each year and go in-depth. This year, it's democracy, it's voting rights, and it's this plot to destroy American democracy, because I believe it is a plot. Uh, and it is an effort to chip and chip and chip and chip away uh, at uh, the very foundation uh, of this nation. Mm. So you say that in a lot of ways this report on the state of black America is a speech about the state of America. I think that's a really artful way uh, of of talking about the role that uh, we as African Americans play in America and how the f- the fate that we are experiencing or in some cases suffering really says everything about America itself. You know, black Americans represent uh, 45 to 50 million uh, of the over 300 million Americans. Black Americans represent one and a half to two trillion uh, in spending in the American economy, Uh, over 10,000 elected officials. uh, And we set trends in culture uh, and in fashion and in music. Uh, we are the working class in many communities that, but for our participation, economies would not grow and would not sustain themselves. And so we are intertwined into the nation. However, uh, we, uh, we, 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 we are targeted all too often in this instance. The targeting has been by right-wing bad actors who have targeted our participation in American democracy uh, to find sophisticated and sometimes not so sophisticated ways to diminish our participation. And it really, really took a turn with the election of Barack Obama. Uh, After Barack Obama's election, I think, is when this plot was hatched. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Tea Party uh, was a visible component of it. But behind the scenes, there were right-wing and conservative lawyers plotting legal challenges to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, There were right-wing policy, uh, if you will, people who were plotting an effort at the state level to get state legislatures to roll back, uh, if you will, the right to vote in many ways. Voter ID was one early tactic, closing polling places, voter purges, making sure the formerly incarcerated couldn't vote or the barriers to their vote were so high. Look at Florida. Even after the people of Florida voted 60% to give the formerly incarcerated a right to vote, the Florida legislature created a set, erected a set of barriers completely inconsistent with the vote of the people. So this is a plot. Mm -hmm. And along the way, there are many, 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 many chapters. And uh, let's talk just a bit about the history here and how we know 
this is about race. Um, you know, often when I have this conversation or an argument uh, with people who are talking to me about uh, voter security and uh, voter fraud, which of course doesn't really exist, um, th- their insistence is that this is not about race, that this is not connected to uh, the nation's historical uh, disdain for black voting rights, which, uh, of course, uh, only really have had the force of law for about 50 years. Uh, but but talk about uh, why we know. Well, let me, let me that, get yeah, go ahead. So an immediate, an immediate reaction is I'm fed up with bogus arguments. Yeah, yeah. There have been at least half a dozen federal courts which have found that states like North Carolina, for example, engage in intentional discrimination. These are now court findings. Uh, This uh, effort is littered with intentional discrimination. It's littered uh, with uh, uh, efforts that are racially directed and motivated. And I am, you know, this is another example of what I call a cover story. Mm-hmm. Let's create a false narrative. False narratives sustained segregation and institutional racism in this country. The false narrative was that black people were inferior, didn't have the ability to serve in important positions, even when they were educated, were not responsible. That was the false narrative that sustained uh, second-class citizenship for black Americans. For centuries, now it's become a lot more sophisticated. Show me the fraud. Show me where this is about integrity. It is not about integrity. It is about an effort to deny certain people the right to vote in large numbers. Uh, and that is what it is fundamentally about. So I think we have to counteract and call the question. Yeah. If you say it's fraud, show me a scintilla of evidence. Show me a minutia of evidence. Identify a single case. Show me where what you're doing is directed at fraud. And I think we have to we have to call the question on these bogus arguments because uh, they uh, they do not they do not hold water. Why we thought it was important is because much of this has happened underneath the covers, behind the scenes where these actors have said, we'll quietly go to all these legislatures. We'll quietly just say we're going to block any voting rights legislation uh, through the Congress by a quiet compact. That quiet compact now is amongst GOP members of the Senate who say we will never allow, we'll use the filibuster to disallow any voting rights bills from coming to the floor of the Senate. This is the same thing. Richard Russell, and Strom Thurmond, uh, and so many others did in the 1940s and 50s. They made a quiet compact amongst themselves. Uh, They don't uh, give flowery speeches about it. They just agree to use their power to block the kind of legislation. So now that the Supreme Court under John Roberts has systemically, in three to four decisions, weakened the Voting Rights Act, Yes. Our only recourse is for Congress, as they've done in the past, to go back and repair the damage that the Supreme Court has done. We were successful in achieving that 
in the House of Representatives on two occasions within the last year. But once again, the Senate, the Senate stood in the way of, uh, of these necessary and meaningful reforms. And we cannot uh, allow this argument uh, to be anything other than understood as a deja vu all over again, as the legendary Yogi Berra said. Mm-hmm. This is the same tactic of the 1950s and 60s being used to thwart uh, fair representation, equal participation in democracy, uh, and, and the rights, the uh, hard-fought rights of uh, African Americans and other communities of color. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Mark Morial. He's the president and CEO of the National Urban League, uh, which just released its annual State of Black America report. It focuses uh, pretty intently on voting rights, which is, I think, one of the most important frontiers right now in the fight for civil rights in America. Think of all of the rhetoric we hear about the need to secure the vote or the need to deal with voter fraud. Why are we hearing that right now? What's going on that's inspiring that kind of backlash? It seems you know, certain I think, that uh, I think it is. A, yeah, go ahead, Mark. Things. I, I think Donald Trump's presidency, his rhetoric, his animation, his coddling of white supremacist movement actors and people like David Duke uh, and, and, and his sanctioning in a very clever way of what occurred uh, in Charlottesville uh, and uh, his entire modus operandi to divide America into an us-against-them frame mm-hmm. has elevated divisions in this country. Voting rights and democracy Fifty years was a bipartisan exercise. Republican president after Republican president, uh, whether it was Nixon or Ford or Reagan or George Bush 43, all signed extensions of the Voting Rights Act. All passed through the Congress with significant support of both Democrats and Republicans. This is a change in course. This is what Americans have to understand. This is a change in course. Uh, And it simply appears as though uh, some people believe that the route to power is to unlevel the playing field, Mm -hmm. to make it more difficult for certain people to vote. Uh, And this is when you analyze it, it is highly targeted. Gerrymandering is interesting in places like North Carolina, for example, Texas and Georgia, Louisiana, notwithstanding the fact that black uh, communities have been responsible for maybe 80 to 90 percent of the increase in the population of those states. The representation of African Americans in the state legislatures and the Congress is being diminished uh, by the drawing of district lines. So, look, this is something that eyes open and it's clear as the sunshine on a beautiful day are as clear as the dark clouds on a bad day. Uh, This is not anything other than an intentional effort. And it is uh, uh, interesting that this is taking place, you know, with the scepter of Trumpism, uh, with the scepter of the 2020 election, and then January 6th. And now, uh, where Vladimir Putin 
the number one anti-democratic force in the world, has invaded Ukraine and sought to crush a democratic regime in favor of his totalitarian approach uh, to leading people. Uh, so this, these issues, in my view, have a connectivity. And this is why, to be consistent, uh, Americans must stand up, yes, for Ukraine and for its sovereignty and its independence and its right to democracy. But we have to do the same thing here at home, not just in words, but in deeds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us what you think of the current state of uh, voting rights, what you make of this assault on voter access uh, and voter ease that we're seeing take place in many, many states uh, around the country. What do you think is the solution? Do you think uh, we need uh, Congress to act? Do we need the courts to be more uh, progressive and involved? Uh, again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Tim in Detroit. Tim, what's on your mind? Well, um, let, me, let me just say um, the uh, Supreme Court hearing last week, they have this body of white guys question Katanji Brown the way they did. This this um, institution sanctioned slavery. They said black people were three-quarters, three-fifths human. It, it, was, it was really embarrassing and galling for them to do this black woman the way they did. That's an indication of how sick uh, <laughs> some of those mm. people are. Mm. That's Tim, I really appreciate the call and and the, the comments. Uh, Mark Morial, I, I imagine that you watched those hearings uh, with the same amount of appall and disgust, I guess, that a lot of other of us who are African American did. That that uh, now Justice Jackson yeah. was treated the way she was by the Senate Judiciary Committee. I think any decent person, any. Any person understands that uh, there's a line to be drawn on what I call tough questioning in a Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearing. And people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Lindsey Graham, they crossed the line. They crossed the line in a significant and substantial way. So I... uh, you know, I think people should also celebrate the fact that notwithstanding that, uh, soon-to-be Justice uh, Jackson stood up with grace and dignity and handled those aspersions with great pride. Uh, I also think that the appalling nature of their questioning backfired on them. Her support in the polls, which had already been high, shot up. Mm-hmm. I think three Republican members, Romney uh, and uh, and Murkowski and Collins, were probably so disgusted they didn't want to be associated uh, with that kind of treatment. So I think we need to call them out. They turned a Supreme Court hearing into a cheap reality show circus. Again, Tim, thanks for the call and the comments. Let's go to Sebastian in Plymouth. Yeah, I'm going to have to take one more call, and then I'm going to oh, have to sure. excuse myself. Yeah, no, no worries. More interview. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Sebastian in Plymouth, go ahead. No problem. Hello. Um, so, yeah, um, I am. my name is Sebastian. I am a college student right now. I'm actually on my way to class. Uh, the reason that I called in was because I, I, you know, I heard the conversation about voting rights and everything. 
And it reminds me of when the Supreme Court, it was only a five to four decision, but a very, very small majority of the Supreme Court decided to strike down a whole portion of the Voting Rights Act because they said, oh, it's no longer needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not just about voting rights. It's also about tons of other issues. But I mean, I I think that uh, the Supreme Court has really overstepped their bounds. And when it comes to voting rights, along with tons of other issues, I think Congress should do something to take away their power because – it's, it doesn't make any sense that a bunch of unelected bureaucrats has authority over the entire nation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the case you're referring to, Sebastian, of course, is Shelby, uh, the case in which uh, Justice John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, uh, made the deciding vote uh, to to strike down that portion of the VRA. Uh, Mark Morial, uh, before you have to go, uh, talk quickly about what the solution is. Well, is, it, Roberts, is it Congress? Yeah, go ahead. I would I would wonder if John Roberts regrets that decision because he was so wrong in believing that the Voting Rights Act is not needed. If you look at what's happened post the Voting Rights Act, that decision created destabilization, uh, division, and 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 racial division in the country. It, mm-hmm. it, it is a decision that, in my estimation, will be seen uh, in the same way we look at the Plessy decision. And the Dred Scott decision as wrong decisions, fundamentally, morally uh, wrong and inconsistent with the best interests of the nation. Uh, and, you know, the courts, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, I think we're all looking at the Supreme Court. Is this Supreme Court going to be a Supreme Court that we look at and say they didn't uphold the Constitution? They didn't protect people's rights. They didn't stand up. They engage in political chicanery uh, in manipulating their role to strike down the Voting Rights Act, which had time and time been upheld, which was generally accepted and respected and followed. Uh, and they basically pu- punched a hole in the side of, of the Titanic. Uh, bad decision by the court uh, and, and, and a decision that I think uh, eroded some of the standing of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, so let me do this. I want to thank you for having me this morning. Sure. I'd love to come back again. Sorry I can't stay and take Yeah, no worries. But appreciate <laughs> you and your voice. And good morning to the people of the great city of Detroit and southeastern Michigan. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for uh, giving us the time this morning. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, uh, coming up, we are going to talk about community, the communities that we live in, and how we become more agents of change for the good in those communities. Really interesting conversation coming up with John Corvino, who's the dean of the Irvin D. Reed Honors College here at Wayne State University, and Chase Cantrell, a Detroit-based attorney and founder and executive director of the nonprofit Building Community Value. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station.
is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We talk a lot on this show about the idea of community, and in fact, I like to think of Detroit Today, our listeners, and me, and our staff here at WDET as a community. But we want to spend the rest of the time today talking more literally about the idea of community, the communities that we all live in and are physically a part of. What's your role in moving that community forward? Have you ever stopped to really ask yourself that question? And if so, what answer do you come up with? And what do you do next? Have you made the decision that you want to engage in your community in a more meaningful way, in a way that maybe changes that community for the better? And if so, how do you try to do that? And if you did, what was the result? We're going to talk about that and what it means to engage thoughtfully within a city or a community. And it's also a question that panelists are going to dig into this afternoon at 4 as part of Wayne State University's Arthur L. Johnson Urban Perspectives Lecture Series. It's going to highlight participants in a project called I.Detroit, where uh, they were recognized for their roles in the city's culture, history, activism, and devotion. You can intend... Uh, this event in person at Wayne State University's undergraduate library in the Bernath Auditorium, or you can attend virtually. To register or get more information, go to events.wayne.edu. And joining us now are two people who are going to be participating in this event. John Corvino is the dean of the Irvin D. Reed Honors College at Wayne State University. He's going to be the moderator for today's Arthur L. Johnson Urban Perspectives Lecture Series panel. John, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Chase Cantrell. He's a Detroit-based attorney and the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Building Community Value. Chase, welcome to Detroit Today as well. Good morning, Stephen. Always great to be with you. So, John, start here. Explain what the I Detroit Human Atlas of an American City Project is and why it's significant. So, uh, the I Detroit Project is a profile of 100 Detroiters who are changemakers that was conceived by British artist Marcus Lyon. And, you know, when, when you hear about a British artist coming to Detroit, to profile 100 Detroiters, at least my reaction initially was to get a little nervous because, you know... <laughs> Who's he going to talk to, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So, so I like, well, because, you know, I, I've lived in the city for 24 years and I have seen people come to treat Detroit literally as a photo op. You know, you, you come in, it's like, look at us, we're the pioneers coming to this gritty city. And what was wonderful about this project is that Marcus Lyon approached this very, very thoughtfully. He, there was a six-month nomination process where he talked to people in the city of Detroit. Um, there, you know, it was, very, it was very interactive. And then he chooses 100 Detroiters while recognizing that, of course, there are many significant people in the city, many changemakers in the city, uh, including Chase, who is one of the people profiled in the book. And he does photographic portraits, but also genealogies, talking about how people got here, how their families got here, 
There is an, an interactive video. It's funny, I had a student in my office, uh, a high school student yesterday, who was flipping through the book and took out his phone and started doing something. He's like, this is really cool. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I downloaded the app, and there, there are these interactive things, and you know, it takes me that long to remember my password to, 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 to do something. But So it's this really integrated project that thoughtfully engages with people of the city and profiles and celebrates those people for the, the influence they've had. Yeah, and we've actually talked with Marcus uh, here on Detroit Today about uh, his project and how he put it together, how he thought of uh, what he was doing and what he was trying to send and as a message, uh, not just to Detroit, but to the world about uh, about this collection of Detroiters. That's a, a show you can go to WDET.org and, and find by searching. Um, but John, talk about how then this connects to the idea of engagement with a city or a community in a meaningful way. Well, you know, here at Wayne State, because we are a public research university right in the city of Detroit, we, you know, we try to engage thoughtfully with the community. I mean, a lot of universities have a kind of town and gown problem in how they relate to people in the community. We feel very much more embedded in the community. And two of my colleagues, Dr. Beth Fowler and Dr. Brian Ellis, decided to do a course this term about the iDetroit project and use it as a springboard for thinking about what thoughtful engagement with a community means, you know, what it means, you know, not just to to go in and study a community, but to engage with, learn from, converse with the people of a community. Um, one of the people profiled in the book, I, I love uh, Marsha Music, and I, I, there's a thing that she says that I love, uh, which is that uh, you know people always talk about Detroit's comeback, and she's like, what's this comeback? You came back. We were here all along. Where, where were you? Um, <laughs> and uh, you know the, the, this this notion that the, you know, there are, there are people here. We 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 live here. We work here. We thrive here, and to um, approach that in a thoughtful way, and so. Uh, my two colleagues who are teaching that course right now um, chose five of the people from the book. I mean, there's so many amazing people in this book and amazing people not in this book, but they chose five of the people from the book to have a public conversation about this question of what does it mean to engage thoughtfully with a city. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Chase, I want to bring you into the conversation here and have you talk about the work that you're doing through building community value and how that fits into this conversation about community. Sure. Well, building community values an organization that was founded about six years ago. And it, it really is in response to the vision that Detroiters have of their own neighborhoods. So we all know that over the past 10 years, we've seen just a, a, a rapid increase in economic development and development in the built environment in our in our city. And if you're a Detroit resident living in a neighborhood, oftentimes you might see a house across the street or you know a small commercial building on the corner and really have a vision for it. I don't think there's any lack of uh, that sort of insightfulness and uh, that sort of visionary emphasis in our neighborhood. So, you know, we started this org in order to give Detroiters the tools to to truly have agency over over their neighborhood. So teaching them how to do real estate development, what it means, um, how to talk to lenders, how to talk to professionals like architects and contractors to actually make the make these projects work and pencil out. So that's that's what we do. But you know, it's more than economic development. And I always get pretty, pretty emotional when I'm teaching the course because 
people come in who have lived in Detroit, most, most of the participants have lived in Detroit most of their lives, and the stories that they tell of seeing the evolution of their neighborhoods and, and wanting to do something to, to truly positively impact community. Like that's that's really the point. It's just giving Detroiters and sort of, you know, un, unlocking the agency that's already there and letting them know that economic development and, you know, the changes that we see are not something that you have to, uh, that you just have to experience as something coming from the outside, but that you yourself can have, you know, tools to actually lead the change that we see. So that's that's what we do at BCV. And it's been, it's been truly rewarding because we've seen after 300 Detroiters and also residents of Highland Park and Hamtramck have gone through the program that we have folks who have gone back to their their neighborhoods and done projects and yeah. are continuing to to build uh build their development practices so it's just really heartening to see what what detroiters want to do and what they have done one of the things i really love about this project is that it embraces the idea that all of us uh can learn an awful lot about how to make differences in our community. And I think that's not, um, I guess that's not always a foregone conclusion. I mean, I think uh, for for a lot of people, the assumption sometimes is, well, um, I, I live here and I have ideas, so that's what, that's what I need. Um, but for so many of us also, that's just not true. I mean, there. Th- this is harder than just coming up with an idea. It's harder than uh, just wanting things to be better in in your community. And there is a uh, a base of community knowledge, I guess, that that we want to build up among people who live here in Detroit, so that more of the things that we dream can actually happen. Uh, and and doing that work to to build that knowledge through this course and sending people back out into the community is, is, is a key piece that we haven't always had in place. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and what's wonderful is there's another panelist, Tiffany Brown, um, a local African-American architect uh, who leads 400 forward. And, you know, whereas, you know, BCV teaches adults, she's teaching children. She wants, she wants to, she wants to Im- embed in, in our youth the, the idea from a very early age that, again, they have control over their, their built environment and that they can vision for the future and that they have the tools as early as possible to know that as they move into adulthood, that they can be the leaders in their communities. So, mm-hmm. you know, this, this sort of work is happening all over the city in all different formats and forms. And, and it's not new. I find that, you know, I've lived in Detroit almost all my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, this this kind of work is something that we that we do naturally. So to the to the point that, that John was making, um, citing Marsha Music, you know, we've we've been doing the, the work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a chance yesterday. There's a group of philanthropic leaders that came to Detroit because, you know, leaders from across the nation are, are very interested in, in what's happening here. So they were visiting, they took a bus tour, they, they had a presentation from Mayor Duggan. And really one of the things that came up was just this idea that, hey, we've been doing this and the nation is just catching up to the fact that, you know, Detroiters have been rolling up our sleeves for, for many, many decades. Mm-hmm. But now there's the interest in understanding how we're doing it, how it can be funded, because that's always uh, an important question in Black communities across that's the nation. Where, right. Where's the capital? So yeah. I think we're having more robust conversations now about how we actually give people in community the resources and, and the money to make these, these projects really robust and really happen. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm talking with uh, John Corvino and Chase Cantrell, two uh, panelists at the uh, at the Arthur L. Johnson uh, lecture series that's going to take place at Wayne State University today at 4 o'clock. Um, you can attend that in person at Wayne State University's undergraduate library in the Bernath Auditorium, or you can attend uh, virtually. You just have to register uh, and get more information at events.wayne.edu. Uh, we're talking about community and the way we build the community, uh, the way that each of us individually has agency over building those communities, the physical communities that we live in. How do we change them to make them better? Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. What does it mean to you to engage thoughtfully in your community? How do you think everyday people can move their communities forward in a meaningful way? Call in and share your stories of how you engage in your community. Talk about how easy or hard it is. And talk about what kinds of things might make it easier, uh, the kinds of things that uh, could help clear the way for the kind of work that you want to do in your community. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Um, how I participate in my community is by being Block Club president. And um, we have a relatively small um, Block Club, um, but getting young people involved is such a massive job. They can come up with one excuse after another for why they're too busy. Um, that frustrates me. I'm also frustrated by people not taking care of their curb. Yesterday, I grabbed a broom and a shovel and just went down our block, mile long, and just started scraping debris and bottles and trash um, from the curb. Because I don't want our street looking like certain parts of, let's say, Highland Park. I want to come and turn down my street and have nice trees and clean curbs and grass that's cut. So, so tell me a little about the, the block club uh, that, that, that you lead there, Bernadette, and uh, who's part of it, and I guess how you might get more people to be part of it so that some of these things that you're talking about might look a little different. Okay, it's called Harvest Community Block Club, and we are located west of Telegraph. And this is an area that people think um, doesn't it is truly part of Redford Township, but mm -hmm. it's not. So it it's extends from Telegraph uh, halfway, um, uh, half a mile. And um, so we, um, I came ready to volunteer to be. Um, uh, secretary, and everybody said, fully secretary, we need you to be president. <laughs> and so um, that would happen. We would meet monthly and introduce ourselves. And two years in, we got the pandemic, and everybody um, is scared to come and be inside of a building because most of our population is over 60. Okay. Okay. Uh, Bernadette, I really appreciate you calling and 
sharing that uh, that experience. Uh, Chase and John, I'll give you a chance to respond. Chase, I'll start with you. Sure. Bernadette, I really want to thank you for calling in. And I know that you're a, uh, a caller who has called in before. Um, I, I, I love what you're what you're talking about, because block clubs have always been at the cornerstone of community in Detroit. And I, and I often say that, you know, a lot of that work feels like uh, thankless, unrewarded work, but it's the important work that has kept our communities beautiful and safe. Um, and it's not just it's not just a way to beautify a community. It's also one of the key ways that uh, neighborhoods throughout Detroit have gotten information to residents. So, you know, we we are in a period where we're, you know, we're, we have a more robust governmental presence than we may have had in certain periods in the past. Um, but, you know, before that time, you know, getting information to residents, it's, it still can be difficult, but um, Black clubs have always been vital as an information source and as a source for participation. So, I mean, these are truly, truly important parts of our ecosystem. And, you know, sort of going up the chain, you know, you have Black clubs, you have community development organizations sort of at the next tier. Um, and all of these really are vital to um, beautification efforts, information efforts, getting uh, relationship building between communities and government. Um, which a lot of these block clubs often welcome in staff members from uh, the districts and from uh, the mayor's office. So I mean, these are these are truly important, and I'm glad that I'm glad Bernadette that you're doing that work. And um, I have heard many times that it is difficult to get my generation. So I'm a I'm a elder millennial, <laughs> but my generation and younger involved. Um, but I think part of it really is just just uh, serving as that example um, that that what is possible um, and, yeah. and, and keeping and keeping at it to try to get those youth involved. But I know that it is a challenge. Yeah. John. Yeah. I mean, what I love about what Bernadette said is, is, is that it started with an individual who decided, look, I want to live in a, in a beautiful community. I don't want you know trash on the streets. I, I want to do something and literally rolled up her sleeves and, and got out there to do something and, and then organized with other people through a block, block club. Uh, you know, I, I live in northwest Detroit. We have a, a, a thriving um, neighborhood association in Sherwood Forest where I live. And, you know, we often say, you know, you, you, you often will come to these neighborhoods for, you know, for the trees, for the architecture, but you stay for the people because there really are wonderful people in our neighborhoods. And it's another reason why it frustrates me. Or, and this happens less than it used to. But you know, when, you, when you leave Detroit and you travel and you tell somebody that you're from Detroit and they're like, oh, but where are you really from? You're like Royal Oak, Ferndale, Gross Point. It's like, no, I'm I, from Detroit. And I've actually had people say to me, I didn't think anyone lived in Detroit. I was like, what do you, what do you mean you didn't think anyone lived in Detroit? And this is the, the kind of thing that we really want to highlight and celebrate and that you know, Marcus Lyons' project celebrated, that you know, t today's event is going to celebrate, that we have these wonderful change makers in Detroit, you know, from block club members to you know, people like you know, Chase who run organizations uh, you know, and, and all across the board. Uh, we're going to come back and continue this conversation about community, how we shape our communities, how we get more involved in our communities. I'm going to continue to hear more from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there. We'll work into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is 
Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Got two guests right now, John Corvino, who's the dean of the Irvin D. Reed Honors College at Wayne State University. He is going to moderate uh, today's Arthur L. Johnson Urban Perspectives Lecture Series panel on what it means to thoughtfully engage with the city. That is today at 4 p.m., uh, and you can, uh, you can attend that event in person at 4, um, uh, or you can attend it virtually. Uh, also with us is Chase Cantrell. He is a Detroit-based attorney and the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Building Community Value. We're talking about what it means to engage in a city. Chase will be a, a panelist on uh, that lecture series as well. Uh, again, you can attend that at uh, 4 p.m. at Wayne State University's undergraduate library in the Bernath Auditorium, or you can attend virtually. To do either, you can go to events.wayne.edu to find more information. <clears throat> we want to hear from you during this conversation as well about your community, how you're participating in it, how you're working to make it different or better. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go next to Adrian in Detroit. Adrian, welcome to the show. Morning. I'm glad you extended it on an extra hour so that I got in just before <laughs> the next hour. But I want to say this. I have grown up in Detroit, still live here, have traveled the world from Africa to Paris. I'm never shamed when they say, where are you from? I tell them boldly, I'm from Detroit. <laughs> I live in East English Village. I walk uh, the little island there. I pick up trash. Everyone may not participate in keeping your area clean, but it's each individual's responsibility to clean up your area. Your next-door neighbor may not clean theirs, but you must clean yours. What is that saying? I may not clean the whole ocean, but this part I can take care of right here. So if everyone does their part, then we wouldn't necessarily need everyone to attend a black club, would we? Mm. Uh, Adrian, interesting point, and and I absolutely love the idea uh, of individual agency that you're pointing up, right? The idea that each of us has the ability uh, to shape the community that we live in and, and some responsibility uh, to do that as well. Uh, let's go next to Trajan in Detroit. Trajan, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Can you hear me? I can. Great. Uh, I am the uh, Roseale Park Radio Patrol president. And what that entails is uh, the Roseale Park Radio Patrol is a uh, city police, D Detroit Police Department sponsored nonprofit volunteer organization. We have a team of volunteers from all around the neighborhood who take uh, about two hours a month out of their month to drive around the neighborhood and look for, uh, you know, not only crimes that are taking place, right? We have a direct line to the Detroit Police Department if we do see any crimes taking place, but also looking for things like uh, downed tree limbs or uh, street lights, street signs that have been knocked down or are inoperable anymore, and uh, report those through the Improved Detroit app to really, you know, improve the the appearance and the, uh, the safety of the neighborhood. Mm. Uh, so, uh, Trajan, I wonder how, um, I guess, how empowered and supported, I guess, you feel in... Uh, not just in your neighborhood, but but in in the city to, to to be able to take this kind of action and and do these kind of things. So I would say 
we feel really empowered. Um, the city has an excellent uh, liaison with the Detroit Police Department, Myra Gracie. She works with, uh, she, she's a, a member of the Detroit Police Department who specifically focuses on the community, on the uh, community engagement and on the radio patrol, even more specifically. Um, the patrols, we have patrols all across the city throughout uh, a variety, over a dozen neighborhoods across the city. Um, the police department actually pays for our volunteers' vehicle mileage. So, uh, you know, we, we as an organization in the neighborhood have quarterly meetings and we have guest speakers from city officials who come in and talk about things like crime or, or uh, police initiatives that are going on in the city, safety-related initiatives. And then the, the city also has quarterly citywide radio patrol meetings um, hosted by Myra, and she also has uh, city leaders such as the uh, you know, police, chief of police, even mm-hmm. um, I- individuals who give crime data and statistics. It's, it's a really well-run organization, a really well-run program, and, and we feel very supported from the city. Yeah. Uh, Trajan, I appreciate the call uh, and, and the comments. Um, uh, John and Chase, before we have to end, we have only got about two minutes left, but I want to have both of you address one of the topics that's slated to be part of this afternoon's conversation. It's social agency. Uh, what does that mean to you, and why is it important here in Detroit? John, uh, I'll start quickly with you. So I always look at this through the, the lens of you know, being an educator, a professor, and a dean, where you know I have students, some, some of whom come and think, well, you know, the world kind of happens, and there's, there's not much for me to do. It's gonna, things are going to happen anyway, and we try to encourage them. It's like, no, there are things you can do. You can um, cooperate with others. You, 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 can, you can make change. You can do that in a thoughtful way. And then, you know, on the other hand, there, there are students who just want to get out and do all kinds of things, and, and I try to, you know, give them a, a dose of humility and say, look, you know, yes, there, there are lots of things we can do, but there are other people doing those things already, and, you know, we need to check in with them first. We need to talk to them. And, and striking that balance uh, can be very important when we think about social agency, and, you know, that's, it's one of the things we'll talk about tonight. Yeah. Uh, Chase, uh, go ahead. So one of the one of the things that I often uh, think through is that we don't always do a good job at mapping sort of the tools that we have. Like we talk a lot about economic development, we talk a lot about employment or safety, but we don't talk about the outcomes, right? Like what we're looking for. If we're, we're talking about jobs, we're not talking about dignity or fulfillment. If we're talking about development, we're not talking about the the connectedness to community. I think we heard in all of the callers' voices just how proud they were to be to be connected and to be doing something and to be participating. So I think for me, social agency isn't just about the change, but it's about what happens within the individual and how they feel and the emotions it provokes um, in relation to their neighborhood, their community, into their city. So for me, it really is about. Um, thinking beyond just the tools and the actions, but thinking about the outcomes that we produce in the individual. So that's social agency for me. Okay, John Corvino and Chase Cantrell, you can see them both uh, on this panel at Wayne State University, uh, at the Wayne State University Undergraduate Library in the Bernath Auditorium. Just go to events.wayne.edu. John and Chase, thanks for being here on Detroit Today, and good luck on your panel. Thanks so much. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is going to join the program to talk about the latest news from Washington. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>